the Science Inside podcast. This is the Science Inside. Hello and welcome to the Science Inside, where we bring you the latest news, stories and events happening in the world of science and technology. Good evening, I am Bridget Leberry. South African-born innovators, both from rural parts of South Africa, Luyanda Vapi and Mochol. Mochola Nesibola are in the tech space to win it. They are here to disrupt modern day computing. They have built the world's first virtual peripheral input and output personal computer called the Prism. And the amazing part about this all is that it is 100% proudly South African. All the parts and knowledge put into making this computer was sourced all here from South Africa. It is a compact solution that addresses various needs incorporating virtual input peripherals and output display in a single convenient unit. Now, I had the opportunity to speak to its innovators and to get to touch this personal computer, which is really nifty and smart, um, um, I should really say. And I was able to see it, to test the prism and give my insights on my experience with interacting with this tiny little PC. And it is relatively tiny in comparison to the standard desktops and even laptops that are available on the market. It could be about seven to nine me, um, millimeters wide and about 10 millimeters in breadth it fits comfortably on the palm of your hand and has no mouse no keyboard no visible no visible screen but it is fully functional can you believe that now, these two techies say the need for this kind of innovation was motivated by the need to digitize and improve accessibility of technological gadgets in rural areas. PRISM also aims to enhance digital, digital skills by improving the accessibility of digital literacy, literacy tools. And this compact unit... Um, produces around two, um, two gigahertz of processing power. It has Bluetooth, wireless, LAN, uh, battery life that lasts up to two hours, a 64 gig, um, onboard memory, which can be extended by uh, an additional SD card of up to 200 gigabytes capacity. Now that is some power right there. The team has their sights on deploying PRISM at schools, particularly those in areas with low connectivity, to ensure that the curriculum is available online. And the wonderful part about it all is that this you know, this device, you can move it around and it can charge uh, just like a normal cell phone. So it doesn't require a lot of power. He has said that even in rural uh, communities like your Eastern Capes and um, some parts of Limpopo where they rely heavily on battery power or solar power, they're able to actually, you can actually power up this um this little device just like you would with your cell phone but uh, i'm going to be touching on that uh, little innovation much later on in the show but on unscience we are going to learn about a computer system that has shed some light on how imaging can actually affect our emotional well-being then in our final story uh, we are still on disruptive science and technology uh, conversation and we chat to us on a computer scientist and senior researcher at the council for scientific and industrial research that is the csir in short yasin mullah 
who specializes in identity authentication as part of the CSIR's research and development in information security and how they're using this biology and tech together to identify young children through their biometric systems. But right now, we are going into the news with Eva Cheaper. This week's Science Headline. New news making headlines this week. Scientists unveil a new game changer implant for HIV prevention and a new gelish embryo inspired plaster that heals wounds seven times quicker could revolutionize wound treatment. Good evening, I'm Eva Cheaper. Good news bells are sounding for HIV negative people as they may no longer have to take a daily pill to prevent contracting the virus. As advised previously with the proven pre exposure prophylaxis prep treatment plan. Many people who start PrEP are reported to not sticking with it or taking the pills, which only intermittently undermine its effectiveness. At the recent International AIDS Conference in Mexico City, pharmaceutical giant Merck & Co. reported a potential solution. A slow-release implant of an experimental antiretroviral ARV drug designed to be long-lasting in the body. The combination promises to provide an effective HIV shield for one year or more, far longer than any ARV currently on the market. It's one of the several novel ARV strategies moving forward that offers potentially simpler options for treating or preventing HIV and, if widely used, could change the course of the AIDS epidemic. Heads of National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases in Bethsaida, Anthony Fauci, says if the implant proves safe and effective on a large scale, it may fail, as many promising experimental drugs do. The Merck study included just 12 people. To develop a PrEP regime that does not require any daily pills, Merck tested two doses of its compound, MK8591 or Isla Travir. The company packaged MK8591, which inhibits an enzyme HIV needs to replicate, in slow-release implants, much like those used for contraception. In the study, the researchers placed implants under the skin of people who are not infected with HIV, and the devices released the compound over 12 weeks before being removed. Four weeks later, the researchers measured MK8591 levels in participants' blood. In the six people who received the higher dose, the levels remained so high that the investigators projected the implant could thwart infection for 12 to 16 months. Researchers reported no safety issues surfaced at the meeting. Falsi adds that a long-lasting implant that slowly delivers the potent ARV might be the next best thing to an HIV vaccine, something scientists have been pursuing for 25 years. Vice President at the American Pennsylvania, George Hanna, says the compounds last unusually long in the blood once released by the implant because, in part, it has a fluorine atom that helps it to resist degradation. Merrick plans to launch a 250-person prevention study for a once-a-month pill formation of the same compound in September. Although MK8591 could be used by itself to prevent HIV infection, according to Hannah, Merrick tested a pairing of the MK8591 with two other ARVs over 24 weeks in over 100 HIV-infected people. The drug combination proved safe and as effective as an approved three-drug treatment regime. A study conducted by France's National HIV AIDS Agency recruited more than 600 people with fully suppressed levels of HIV through the use of standard ARV3 drug regimes. 
taking pills less often for HIV treatment may soon become an option too. Half the participants continue to take their pills each day, with the other half taking them only four days a week. After 16 months, more than 95% of the people in each group still controlled their infections. This could make treatment less burdensome, less expensive and less toxic. The ultimate benefit of a two-drug regime is to reduce toxicities from extending exposure to an unnecessary ARV. And on our final story, a fast-acting wound-closing-embryo-inspired bandage could see the treatment of a wound taking half the time according to research. The human embryo-inspired band-aid is 17 times stickier than a conventional band-aid. It acts quickly in response to skin heat, drawing the edges of wounds together for quicker and safer healing. Bioengineer from the University of Victoria in Canada, Mohesin Akbari, says this would change wound management altogether, adding that traditional wound dressings like gauze and cloth bandages heal passively by keeping skin moist and holding medicines close to the wound, while the new gel plaster uses temperature-sensitive materials to draw together wound tissue, while the silver nanoparticles kill harmful microbes. The material has only been tested in mice. However, researchers say, should the new bandage work this well in humans, it could offer new treatment options for everything from minor wounds to chronic injuries. The project began as bioengineer Serena Blacklow's undergraduate thesis in medical school at Harvard University. She and a colleague, David Mooney, wanted to create a tough adhesive wound dressing that could facilitate fast, safe healing for large and small wounds. They were inspired by the seamless and scar-free healing process scientists have observed in animal embryos. Skin cells called keratin oxides in a dark wound slowly crawl across the injury to cover the wounded area. But when an embryo is wounded in the lab, it heals quickly and efficiently as thin filaments of protein called actin. Backlow and her colleague began with a gelish substance from the seaweed called alginate. To make a contract in response to heat, they mixed a widely used temperature-sensitive polymer that shrinks at about 32 degrees Celsius. Human skin typically has a temperature of 37 degrees. The shrinking action pulls together the skin beneath, drawing in the edges of the wound. In order to ensure that the plaster stuck to both healthy and wounded skin, using Cheeto sand material from the ocean, which penetrates both the skin and the hydrogel, made the gel 17 times stickier than a plaster, ensuring staying power on the wounded area. Silver nanoparticles were added to the gel to give the bandage antimicrobial properties. The particles stay in the gel while releasing a steady stream of silver eons, which are deadly to most infection-causing bacteria. When tested on wounded mice, the mice healed far more quickly with the bandage than wounds closed halfway in less than five days versus a week or more for untreated wounds. The gels are also relatively cheap compared with many alternatives. Interests are high in seeing the effects of this bandage on diabetic wounds, which heal differently from normal wounds. The bandage has a long way to go before it can be given the thumbs up, and researchers plan to test the technology on other animals before seeking food and drug administration approval. Recapping your top stories this hour, scientists unveil a new game-changer implant for HIV prevention and a new gelish embryo-inspired plaster that heals wounds seven times quicker could revolutionize wound treatment. This week's news was sourced from Science Daily. 
Well, there we have it. We have just found out that there's um, a new treatment for HIV prevention. And that makes me really happy because, I mean, any strides in new um, treatment of vaccines for HIV is really a great step towards curing this monster. And um, also this new plaster that they found that can actually heal up a wound, you know, within a few days, two or three days tops and you'd see your skin healing up really quickly. So I'm really liking all of this uh, developments that are taking place in the health space. Uh, But now we find out more about a tiny personal computer that can and will influence how we are using and uh, interacting with computers all of this after the break Welcome back. You're still with the science inside. Earlier on, I spoke about disruptive tech and innovations that are fast changing the way in which we interact with one another on our computers and how we are using this technology to better our lives. Now we are going into an interview with Luanda Vapi, one of the co-founders of Root Tech and it equipment and software company that has designed the first personal computer with virtual input and output displays which will change the way in which we work on our computers okay so firstly i just want to find out from you how did you and your partner come together and put together this concept and why this personal computer that is so tiny so the the initial idea started i think around two and a half years ago we'd started with a product called the edutube so the edutube is essentially it was a micro pc much like this one Mm -hmm. that had school's content going through the whole e-learning position in that we wanted a complete solution that would essentially replace the school bag so it had school's content that we'd sourced from the department of basic education at a national level from grade R all the way to grade 12. So it was a fully functioning PC, but it's still, you know, you needed to have a keyboard, a mouse, and a screen. And the primary market at the time was essentially the rural areas. So what we soon discovered, the initial pilot that we did, was that it wasn't feasible. As much as we had this cool tech that we'd, we'd come up with, if we were essentially replacing the school bag, the learner had to take the device back home, and back home would have to have another set of keyboards, mouse, and screen setup, which didn't make it feasible and was was quite costly, essentially. I'm sure you can understand, given the market. We then decided to just scrap the need for peripherals, input-output devices, and hence that was the, the, the birth of the prism. We basically integrated all three components into one single device, where your screen is now virtual, your keyboard is virtual, as well as your mouse. How we've done that is through using a direct laser projection technology for the monitor and using laser technology for the keyboard and the mouse. So essentially the keyboard is a light that's reflected on any surface essentially and then your monitor is reflected off a wall or whatever you may use that's available to you. We're solving one problem which led us another innovation how the keyboard and the mouse works i'm going to ask about those functionalities a bit later but i just want you to talk to me about um, the dimensions of the prism actually 
I'd like you to take it out so I can see it. So you can, so as you can tell see, me how big it is. As you can see, I'll give this to you. Actually, this is a pouch that we carry it in. In here, I have the charger, and this is the device. Oh my goodness! So, are you saying this is a computer? It, it looks more like um, a CC <laughs> TV camera, <laughs> something that would sit up there. Not really something yeah, that I could literally use. It's a PC, essentially. If you put it down on the table, you switch on the light. If you face it that way, I think it would be better. So, if yeah. I put it, then I switch it off. And you just switch it on. Oh my goodness! So, so this specific machine is running Windows 10. Oh my goodness! Like it's projecting yeah. on a screen. So that's why I literally do not need a screen. Essentially. There were some lessons that we've learned even this. So this is, uh, I call it our rough draft, this particular device. Okay. Because we essentially wanted to first prove the concept. Sure. And no one's ever done this before in terms of integrating all three components successfully. Sure. So we started out with basic projection module. So in, in projection speak, they talk a lot about lumens. Now, lumens relate to how bright uh, the, sure, the light bulb, the light bulb. is. This specific one, so that's that's basically the Windows. So was screen. it starting up? Yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and then if you press that little button, which one? That white one, it's facing you, at the top. See the back of the device? That little square silver unit. There's a little button. Yeah, just hold it. No, oh, just press on it. Just hold it like that. Yeah, there you go. Push the whole device a bit forward. Okay. Do you see your? <gasps> yeah. Oh my God. So. So so that's so right now. If you just type on it, just type on the on the thing, you'll be able to see on the little screen in front of you the actual keys that you're typing out. Yeah. Yeah. So that's essentially how you type. Now to move from mouse mode, the laser keyboard has two functionalities or two modes. Right now it's in keyboard mode, mm -hmm. but it switches from keyboard mode to mouse mode. So do I have to activate that? You have to activate. There's a key there. I think, I think it's next to Alt. There's two keys that are together. Alt and... And Control? Yeah. Just try pressing both together. Try the ones on the other side of the spacebar. Mm. Just press them together. Yeah. Now it's yeah, in... Now so it's move, your, move your finger. Um. Move any your index finger just, and look at the screen. So there's your mouse. Oh, great. So if you go to start, just move your mouse to st to where the start is. Tap on it. And there you go. Wow, and then I can go to my Skype or... Yeah. So this functionality would work for if maybe I want to go on the internet. Yeah. And then search for something and then obviously I'd have to enable or activate my keyboard again yeah. if I want to search. And then for as long as I'm just browsing on the net then I can just continue. The same way you just be focused on your mouse when you're just clicking away, mm -hmm. you're able to activate mouse mode. And then when you want to work on your keyboard, you just switch to keyboard mode. Wow, this is really phenomenal. Yeah, I mean, like you've taken like great strides. I've never seen something like this before. This ordinary table has turned into Thank an you. electronic yeah. device. I should also add that, okay, as part of the whole human-computer interaction, there's a whole study around that. Yes. This technology is essentially a disruptor. Of course it changing is. Changing the way people interact with computers. Yes. Therefore, you can't do conventional things anymore, how you conventionally used to interact or sit down from a desk point of view. Yes. So we've actually worked with another company. We call it Develop the Desk of the Future, School Desk of yes. the Future. Bespoke 
for this device. So that's another thing that's coming. When you're saying it's disrupting, you know, a whole lot of industries, because I mean, then we won't need a company that will just create a keyboard or monitor and everything is interfaced into one device. It will just change the way children learn in schools. I mean, not just children. I mean, think about it. I use this thing at home. So I've got a Netflix account. I put it on my coffee table. I connect. It's got Bluetooth. Yes. It's got wireless. It's got a LAN port and a, is it what? an SD slot. An SD slot. So it's extendable. To a about, 64 gig, right? It's 64 on board. So you can extend it with an SD to about 200 plus. Wow. Gigs. So the idea with, with this particular PC is that you know, I don't longer need a big screen TV anymore. I consume whatever media on demand service I have. When I go to work in the morning, I take the same device and I go to work. And then does it allow you to make the screen bigger? So this is the prototype. Like I said, this is a yes. rough draft. So the go-to-market version that we're working on now will be able to do that. It's got an autofocus, sort of like a responsive design element to it whereby so if you move the device closer, if you've chosen a screen size, it'll just auto-adjust to that screen size based on where you're actually projecting. So do you need um, a projector, a special projector, or can this just be projected onto a wall? Onto a wall, anyway. So this particular device is actually detachable. Mm-hmm. There's a little lever on the side. That's another feature. The projector goes to sleep, and when you wave your hand over it, it, it comes back. This is absolutely amazing, <laughs> I have to say. There's a little square thing at the back, the part that's facing you. Yes. Um, Do you see it? If With your thumb, just slide it to the right. That that thing you're holding, yeah. This one? Yeah, just slide it forcefully. There you go. Mm-hmm. Is it moved all the way? Yes. Now lift up the silver thing. Just lift it up from the top. This one? Yeah. And yeah. put it back down. Inside? No. Anyway. So what that allows you to do is that you can now change the positioning of the device to oh. anywhere. So I can place it here, let's say. Yeah. And then I can type or I move, move my mouse. finger yeah. and like click on... So um, immediately when you sw- when you take it off the device, it then switches on to Bluetooth mode and connects to the PC via Bluetooth. Oh, wow. But I do know that Bluetooth also uses up a lot of battery just on my cell phone. Yeah. So how much of battery... Backup there is that that's externally chargeable as well. This tiny little device. Yes. And what do you call this? That's a custom laser we've we've actually designed. So this is the actual laser that enables this computer to type. Yeah. And then for me to be able to also see the screen yeah. that is being projected. This is just really amazing. So, I mean, this is, this is great for instances where you're trying to share your screen with someone yes you just opened up a web page yes i did so essentially when you're collaborative type environments where you just want one screen but people need to give input and you have one person actually typing or doing whatever you can place that in a central location adjust the screen to whatever size you want and then just have one person capture whatever you're working on. wow this is just mind-blowing yeah. i do have a whole lot of other questions <laughs> to ask you you spoke about netflix how would i load my data here or my uh, data bundles for me to to be able to access the internet this device is wireless enabled so it picks up wireless okay uh, it's got the lan Yes. So you can plug it into LAN and you're good to go. And if you can do your hotspotting from your phone, you can do that as well. Onto this device? Onto this device. It doesn't have a a GSM um, module. Yes. Basically, that allows you to put in a SIM card. 
Okay. It doesn't have that. Perhaps that's something we should look into. Yeah, but then you did say this is just a prototype. What you can do there, you can do on your laptop and your desktop. I don't think desktops have GSM modules. No, it's only laptops. Only laptops. Yeah. Let's talk about the affordability because mm-hmm. you had rural communities, communities that, are, that do not have tons of money mm-hmm. to purchase this device. It looks like an expensive device uh, because it's so high tech it is i mean in this new technology you have to understand yes um, and only with time and as we develop economies of scale can the price actually go down i mean computers when they came out i mean it was a speciality product Not even everyone. cell phones yeah i remember when i was growing up and you know cell phones were the end thing and you wanted one you had to think twice yes asking your parents to get you a cell phone of course because this particular product in terms of de-risking the upfront R&D, we worked a lot with government, in particular the Technology Innovation Agency and the Department of Science and Technology. So from a seed funding in terms of the R&D, the Technology Innovation Agency helped us with that. So this is essentially a product meant to help society as a whole. So the, the deployment model and the go-to commercialization strategy was to essentially go the government route where we basically offset the costs of you having to buy all these peripherals and having all these SLAs with all these different companies. You deal with one. Mm-hmm. That way we can fast track economies of scale because we deal with large volumes. And from a pricing point, it would be realistic then to look at a five to six thousand rand a unit per device, if not less. Five to six thousand, it doesn't sound like a bad price. It doesn't. Because I thought you'd speak about computers that work on the, the Macs. I don't want to mention the brand, mm-hmm. but that uh, work on the iOS operating system. Mm-hmm. So I think it's something that can be done. And as you said, the more there's a demand for these devices, obviously the price will also as, probably you, go down. These volumes, the price will, will go down as well. Because at the moment you are manufacturing them on a small scale. On a small scale, yeah. I mean, our designs, yes, they're done locally. And we contribute a lot in terms of the PCB, the PC board, mm-hmm. and the overall styling and look of the product. I must say, my background is in computer sciences and information systems. Yes. But this called on a whole lot more than just that in terms of, you know, electrical engineering. and. Um, because that's an, another thing that I wanted to ask you about. For this particular device, which part of this device did you and your partner work on? And then which other functionalities did you have to hand over to other people to pitch in? So we informed the overall design and the conceptualization of the product and then got assistance from an engineering house they called them a tech station who was then able to provide us with a skill set that would allow us to develop these custom boards and the integration of the software we formed the design of the pc board i mean as early as this week i was with the engineers uh, working on mark three which is the final one that's going to market. I'm excited about that one as well. Yeah. Uh, Look, we've got... I mean, this is 45 lumens. Yeah. That one is 1.5. Speaking about lumens, the issue of light, blue light pollution, and how blue light also affects our health. Have Mm. you guys looked into that? We love light. And the more natural it is, the better. But are you also considering such things scientifically so that we don't hurt our eyes? Because when you are working behind a computer, you do find yourself lost on the internet and watching one series after another. But are those some of the things that you're considering looking at? We are, and I think it's primarily why we went for projection technology up front. 
can't say much now in terms of the new version after this one. Yes. But I can say we're looking at removing the need to project onto a surface. It'll still be just one device. You won't have to wear it. It'll be just like that. But then how will you see? <laughs> Is that something that you can't reveal I at can't this reveal stage this because it's not in yeah, the market? We've, we've got two international patents on this device, so I'm able to show you everything on that. Great. As well as, as copyright on the integration software. But um, how long have you been working on this project? It's been about two years now. You should have seen our initial prototype. It was the size of a shoebox. Wow, and you've brought it down three sizes down. Yeah, it was way, way, yeah, way down. This is just amazing for the South African market and but I'd like to also understand this works on a 2 gigahertz processor and normal laptops are on a 3.4 3.2 which is the latest one Mm -hmm. so is it because of the size of this device and what it's required to operate on just talk us through those terms just so that we can understand the spec of the current device is based on the market we're trying to penetrate these are not gamers per se. Yes. Because um, highly specced PCs are one for people who program. I mean, you can program on this uh, device as well as gamers. Now, if you're looking forward, should we want to mix up our product line and diversify? Mm-hmm. There would be a need for such a device. We're not saying it's impossible. We just looked at basically the cost and our initial uh, identified market. And this is the spec we came up. How user-friendly is it? Well, you just took me through how to use it. But somebody like my mother, who's never had to use computers, only been introduced to the cell phone. And uh, she's just learning that. But the way this is functioning is almost like a cell phone, but without the keyboard one that is tangible. But I mean, if I look at this... It's like just a cell phone that is in my pocket. Essentially. We wanted the user experience to be very intuitive, something that you're used to doing, which is why we even made this one modular, such that, you know, you're not restricted in terms of where you sit and how it's placed and things like that. The only thing I would say that shocks people initially is when you switch the thing on and and the keyboard comes on, because then they're like, whoa. Yeah, (laughs) I also didn't expect that one yeah. because I thought you were going to say, no, it's got something to do with you thinking because scientists are working on that already where you think, where you think and then things type yeah, out. that things just type themselves yeah, out. Yeah. No, no. From an adoption point of view, like I said, it's an intuitive design aesthetic that we follow. That is just really impressive yeah. to find that there are people who are interested in products that are coming from Africa and going to help young innovators like yourself in Africa to bring products such as this one. I never thought you'd show me the things that you've shown me (laughs) about this device so far. I really wasn't expecting this. This is really groundbreaking and I'm so glad that you came. Well, that was uh, Luanda Vapi from Rootech, and he was talking about this really nifty gadget that they have produced. It's the first of its kind, and especially here for South Africa, we see that South Africa is alive with possibility. And uh, I really enjoyed going through um, looking at this device and seeing what it was able to do. I mean, A simple desk was turned into a keyboard. It was turned into something that I could input something onto this 
little device i mean that was really really amazing to see um and we thank the gods of laser technology in the field of of science uh, for creating this kind of tech and we can only go further with this but later on we are going into unscience unusual unlikely unscience it's that time for Unscience, where we look at the strangest side of research, where we take a peek at what scientists spend a lot of their time and their effort on. Today's Unscience was produced by myself, and welcome to the show, Eva. Thanks. <laughs> okay. Are you looking forward to tonight's Unscience? Yeah, it seems pretty interesting. Okay, so do you suppose, at a glance, a computer could tell the difference between a joyful and a depressing image in a matter of seconds, if it was to look at one? Well, I suppose that in the direction that technology is going in, I wouldn't be surprised to hear about that being possible. Well, research published by the University of Colorado Boulder neuroscientists say it is possible just in the same way that your brain can. Earlier on, you alluded to advancement in tech that makes this a reality. Well, machine learning technology is getting really good at recognizing images and deciphering what kind of objects they can see. In a part machine learning innovation, part human brain imaging study, the paper marks an important step in the application of neutral networks, computer systems modeled after the human brain. So are you saying that the study sheds a new and different light on how and where images are presented in the human brain, which means that what we see even for a brief moment in time could greatly impact our emotions more than we might think? Precisely. According to lead author and postdoctoral research associate at the Institute of Cognitive Science, Philip Kregel, says many people assume that humans evaluate their environment in a certain way and that emotions follow from specific older brain systems like the limbic system, which regulates autonomic or endocrine function in response to emotional stimuli and reinforcing behavior. And according to Kregel, the visual cortex itself plays an important role in processing the perception of emotions. Okay, so how are we going to give this kind of functionality to a computer? Because I'm aware that the brain is far more complex than like system scientists are able to mimic in robots. Sure. It's getting really interesting for the study. Kregel stated that uh, with an existing neural network called AlexNet, which enables computers to recognize objects, with use of prior research that identified stereotypical emotional responses to images, he repurposed the network to predict how a person would feel when they see a certain image. That's interesting in a very creepy way. So did they carry out this research to ensure that the program delivers exactly what you'd like it to deliver? On a network called Emonet, 25,000 images ranging from erotic photos to nature scenes They categorized them into 20 categories, such as craving, sexual desire, horror, or and surprise. And Imonet could accurately and consistently categorize 11 of the emotion types. But it was way better at recognizing some more than others. For instance, it identified photographs that evoke cravings or sexual desires more with more than 95% accuracy. But it had a harder time with more nuanced emotions like confusion or and surprise. That's rather strange. Why was that the case? Or are such programmers predisposed um, to their programmer's preference? I'm not sure why, but even a simple color elicited 
a prediction of an emotion. When Emonet registered a black screen, it picked up anxiety. Wow. Yeah, it associated red with craving, while puppies evoked amusement. I don't know why. <laughs> Imo- yeah, Imonet was also able to reliably rate the intensity of images, identifying not only the emotions, but also how strong they might be. So does this compare with real hum- um, human emotions? So did they test this on human beings for accuracy? To further test and refine Imonet, 18 human subjects were brought in and a functional magnetic resonance imaging fmri machine measured their brain activity they were shown shown four second flashes of 112 images and imonet saw the same pictures essentially serving as the 19th subject right Mm -hmm. so when the activity in the neural network was compared to that in the subject's brains the patterns were matched up a minute are you serious so you mean that they found a correspondence between patterns of brain activity and imonet um, that code for specific emotions. Sure, exactly. It means that Imonet learned to represent the emotions in a way that it becomes biologically plausible, even though Craigle did not explicitly train it to do so. Wait a minute, Bridget. Did you just say that they did not train Imonet to pick up on those patterns? So it did it all on its own, just like how the brain would seek new paths when the normal and usual routes are blocked. Yeah, the brain imaging also yielded surprising findings too. Even a brief or basic image of an object or a face was able to ignite emotion-related activity in the visual cortex of the brain. And different kinds of emotions lit up different regions in the brain. I must say, that's really interesting. But how can this kind of research be put to good use for the greater good of society? Well, researchers say that neural networks like Imonet could be used in technologies to help people to digitally screen out negative images or find positive ones, right? Mm -hmm. It could also be applied to improve computer-human interactions and help advance emotion research. So basically what you see and your surroundings can greatly impact your state of mind. Oh yes, definitely. So ultimately, whatever you consume with your eyes may later affect how you feel. So if you are a sensitive viewer or you get easily scared after watching extended hours of horror movies, then you rather should not. I don't even watch horror movies at all. I can't even watch a trailer. Oh my gosh. <laughs> a trailer? Yeah. I can't. Nope. Never. You're not a special case. <laughs> well, that was it for Unscience. That was unusual, unlikely Unscience. This is the Science Inside. Science Inside. Welcome back to the Science Inside. If you have just joined us, you are just in time for the second half of the show. And in this week's show, we are looking at disruptive technology and how it is being used to better our lives. And in the following interview, we are going to speak about biometric processes. Biometric technology is used in computer-based systems to verify or determine identities of people. A biometric is defined as a measurable biological or behavioral character characteristic of people that that can be used to automatically determine or verify their identities and these characteristics includes fingerprints the iris the eyes and so forth while behavioral characteristics include voice and manner of walking now csr 
CSIR researchers are investigating the development of a system that can be used to determine or verify the identities of people from infancy stage to adulthood using biometrics that can be captured um, at the time of, of birth or during infancy. The system is aimed at, at extending the use of existing adult biometric recognition systems to the management of children's identities. And the most commonly used type of biometrics in the, uh, or at the Department of Home Affairs is the one that we all know, which is fingerprints, to ensure that every citizen is linked to one identity. However, in the case of children, it is possible for a child to be linked to more than one identity, and this can be done to exploit the or defraud the social security system where a child can also even be flown from one continent to the next or from one border to the next without their identity being picked up because um, children's identities are not the same as um, with adults. But for this interview, we have Yasin Moodley um, from um, the CSIR on the line. Good evening, Yasin. Hi, good evening. How do you do? I'm fine, thank you. I'm very, I'm very well. Now, can we just get uh, straight into this uh, interview? Now, I was really excited when I came across this um, innovation. I actually wanted to understand how uh, have you designed this system to identify young children while keeping in mind that their features are ever-changing because they are developing from one stage of infancy into adulthood. Okay. Um, So, uh, you actually did cover that quite well. Um, So... The challenge is, like you say, that children do grow and also that children are quite different from adults. They're, of course, much smaller, but also the behavior is different as well. And um, their physiology is different as well. So we decided to look at several different biometrics to see which ones work best for children when they are small and well, that as they grow older, can you still use the same biometrics to match them as they get older as well? So we've looked at the fingerprint, the iris, and the ear. And um, so we've had to develop hardware and software for each of these so that we can capture the biometrics when the children are really young. And then we've built models that should be able to match them as they get older as well. Okay, so is there anything really specific within a person's iris or maybe their ears? As I have read somewhere that um, as much as somebody grows, uh, you can grow from infancy, but um, some features on your body do not change as, um, as, as quickly as other parts of your body. Is that true or um, is there something that is special that your system is able to pick up? Yeah, so with each of these, so with fingerprints, the fingerprint pattern is actually set from the time the person is born, but it just grows bigger as the person gets older. So the main challenge with that is, of course, being able to get the fingerprints from a child when they are very small, because existing commercial systems don't manage that with, with children. So... You had to actually build a device that can capture the fingerprints from children, from infants, and 
then it should still work as we get older. But of course, uh, that children only grow as fast as children grow, so we have, it will take time for us to actually see the results as they get older. Um, it's, it's the same thing with the irises as well. The, the pattern is theoretically the same, some the time they are small. It's just the matter of being able to get it from children who really don't understand if you tell them to look into a camera. So you got to develop other techniques to um, uh, keeping that in mind that so that you can actually get the items photographs from them. And the ear is actually quite nice because it's quite easy to capture. Um, all you need is a camera and you don't need to touch the baby or anything of the sort. It's quite easy to take a photograph as soon as they are born. Mm-hmm. And uh, we are still investigating if, uh, how stable it is as the children get older as well. Hmm, that is very interesting. So, I know you call this um, a system, but I'd like to get an understanding of if it's an app, if it's a software, what does this thing look like that you are working with that is um, that enables you to capture all of this data? Um, uh, there are different devices, so there's uh, a specific uh, camera that we've developed to take the photograph of the children's fingerprints and then be able to uh, have the software that converts it into a format that is compatible with existing fingerprint recognition systems out there. So it should easily interface into whatever is existing already uh, once we can acquire the fingerprints. Um, the same thing with the irises, it's, uh, there is a specific camera that can be used to take a photograph of the iris. And then there's a processing software to uh, that can actually detect the correct information from the iris pattern and do the matching as well. And it's the same thing as well for the ear, but for that it's any camera can be used as well. Okay, so basically you're using a lot of um, cameras to capture all of this yeah. data, and mm-hmm. then you can just input it into a system. Yeah, and we have to, of course, develop the computer vision software to uh, do the recognition as well. Mm, to be able to identify all of this data. So now, um, this, all of these things that you are currently working on, are they linked to the home affairs systems? Because the home affairs, we, we go to home affairs and they are able to identify us and they have all of these files on our identities and things like that. So are you working together with the Department of Home Affairs to actually improve on their systems? Um, well, the, what we are developing is still in the research phase. We have prototypes. Um, uh, it would be nice if uh, Home Affairs took up our systems once they are complete. And they are aware of the research that we are doing. Okay, so you are in, you are considering of going to talks with them so that you can assist one another and use maybe the yes, same? Yes. yes. Okay, and um, how long have you been working on this um, on this the system or the frameworks that you're looking at? We started with this research about three years ago. Three years ago, and are you still researching? Um, are we anywhere soon to actually implementing um, all of this research that you've been uh, going through? Like I said, it's it's in the prototype stage. We've uh, We've developed uh, 
the hardware and the software. We've actually collected from children as well, and we've shown that it can work. So now it's a matter of uh, taking it to a more uh, production level to be used on a more larger scale. And how many subjects have you um, done the trials on, if I may ask? So far, um, we have about 150 participants in our study, and we are continuing with the data collection and collect further participants' information as we continue. Mm, and I remember when you sent out a call to to the public to participate in, in these trials or in this research, but do you find that South Africans are open to, you know, um, going out and, and helping out with this kind of research and just willing to participate? Uh, yes, there are South Africans who are willing to participate. All right. And now we also have these unabridged uh, birth certificates, but they are not enough in securing the safety and the security for the identity or the identification of a child. So how can this biometric system be featured in to strengthen the security of of one's identity, specifically speaking to the identity of young children? So uh, for the identity documents and birth certificates, there are multiple levels of security. And um, as in a word, the identity documents, we do have the level of biometric security. But um, as it stands now, there's no technologies to acquire the biometric information from children. So the biometric security level is not uh, available in uh, birth certificates throughout the world. So um, once we can acquire this, this data and we have the full recognition system, ideally it can be added as a level of security to link the person's identity to the birth certificate. So you can think of it as an identity document for children. And then it adds the same level of security for children as we already have for adults. Okay. And now we have entered into a week where we are recognizing, uh, I think it's called World Anti-Human Trafficking Week. Uh, where um, So now I want to find out how can we use the kind of data to identify young children who have gone for, you know, for a period of, let's say, 20 years and then they resurface, but then... Let's say I uh, somebody kidnapped my daughter from a hospital and obviously because they were so young, there's no way of identifying them. So how can this system be able to, um, you know, to, to help us identify this person even though they have grown and they are 20 years older, but then it would take us back to say that this is the person that, that went missing 20 years ago? So... That, that's why we chose to study the iris and the fingerprints and the hair. Theoretically, they should remain stable through most of a person's life. So we've built the models that are based on the theory that should allow us to match a person when they are born and again once they 16 years old, 18 years old. But, um, so over small periods of time, it's been shown to work, but... Nobody in the world has actually been able to track it over the full 18 years because the technology to acquire the information is only just a few years old. Yes. So, um, but theoretically, the 
it, it should be possible to use a fingerprint or an iris, possibly even the ears, to recognize somebody who's been missing for such a long time. So you're saying if we were to implement and execute the research that you have carried out now and the um, a system such as the home affairs system was to be incorporated with what you, uh, you are doing now, then if anybody should go missing 20 years or 10 years much later, it would be much easier. It would make the process of you know, identifying people, even those who die and then they are unidentifiable, we could possibly do that if, um, if maybe the body of that person allows us to at the time of doing the investigations. Yes. All right. And just another thing that, um, that is just on my conscience, because human trafficking is fast becoming, you know, something that is, uh, I'm not sure if it's on the on the rise but we hear of instances where people just you know um up and leave and um and that's the thing that is problematic with young children where they can cross the border and they can just go um without even being noticed but how can we use these um systems systems like this how can they help in combating human trafficking uh, incidents uh, uh, um so if certificates in future in the future have the identities of the person linked to it with the biometric information um, then then border authorities can then see that the birth certificate that's produced has the right biometric information that links to the individual and it's linked to the child and there are databases that the country has offered people's identities and then um, it just becomes more difficult for uh, child traffickers to then create forgeries of their birth certificates or any other documents. Yes. So, uh, so then it, it then it's much more difficult for them and hopefully will protect children as well. All right. Lastly, because we are running out of time, uh, even though I would have really liked to indulge you more on this topic, but how affordable, feasible and practical is this solution considering the kind of um, country that we are living in? That has been a consideration in our development. So we are working to try and keep the costs as low as possible and uh, Hopefully, it shouldn't cost uh, uh, too much more than the existing uh, devices that are available for adults. That's the, the main, one of our goals, is to try and keep the cost down as we uh, choose the components and do the development of the hardware. Okay. And and it's still in the research phase, so I can't give an actual... All right. And then, are there any parting words for our listeners? Mm. I think we've covered quite a lot of it. <laughs> okay, thank you so much, uh, Yasin Mula, right? Yes, yes, Yasin Mula. I really appreciate you coming on to the Science Inside, and I've learned quite a lot uh, from what we have spoken about. And I really wish and pray that uh, all that you have put together on paper will actually work out um, in the pra- practical, in a pra- practical sense, so that we can, um, you know, tighten our security as far as our identifications is concerned. Thank you so much. Okay, then. 
There you have it. That was Yasin Mula from the CSIR who is working on biometric processes. And uh, earlier on, we looked at a personal computer that represents the future of computing. One that can and will revolutionize our future interaction with computers. And um, we would like to thank our guests who were featured on tonight's show. Um, there was Luyanda Vapi and... Yasin Mula from the CSIR. Tonight's show uh, was produced by Eva Chipa and tech is by Kudwano Serame. You can find this week's show on podcastjournalism.co.za forward slash science. And the Science Inside is produced by the Vitz Radio Academy, funded in part by the South African Department of Science and Technology. Good night. The Science Inside Podcast.